Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Hey there, everybody. Pastor Matt here from Roots Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and I want to welcome you to this week's message. We are in the middle of a series that we're we're calling the Wisdom Series because it's primarily based out of the book of Proverbs. And what I want to talk about today is how this wisdom is becoming less and less apparent as we detach from faith in the one true God and that impact on our culture is, is being seen in real time. Um, the reason I want to talk about that is because the deeper I get into the study of Proverbs, the more clear it becomes that our culture is in a nosedive. Um, You know, the world and people who live selfishly and only for the flesh have always been hostile to God in varying degrees, especially when these people are in power. We have, you know, historical records of nations that are, you know, horrific, horrific persecution of Christians, trying to stamp out this belief in God, the one true God. And some of that is actually still in existence today. Um, And it's easy for us here in the United States to think that things are now worse than they've ever been. I hear this said a lot, you know, I have not seen things be this worse, you know, or I have not uh, seen things be this bad. Things are worse now than they've ever been. And, you know, that we're living in some uh, time that where it's, you know, the things are so bad at this time, it's never been this bad before. And I would say that is not exactly the case. Things have been worse. Many people have lost their lives. People have been burned out of their homes. People have been left, even most recently, uh, there were Christians in the Middle East who've been left to to flee into the jungle because some Muslim extremists have been uh, hunting them down, burning their homes, and taking the things that they that they wanted, including their children, into slavery unless they are able to escape with the clothes on their back, their possessions that they have in their hand, and just with their very life. The truth is, is that this isn't the worst things have ever been. This may be the worst that we have seen, and it may feel like because we haven't seen things degrade this far in our own culture, it may seem like things are worse now than they've ever been but they are not. They are the worst things that we, in our limited time frame, have experienced. So the better way to say that is that not that things are the worst they've ever been. It's like, I haven't seen them be much worse than this. See, we are watching the erosion of sanity, of wisdom, of clear thinking, of logic, of understanding. We're watching the erosion of these things in real time. And as I was noticing that from the passages of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 6 that we're going to go through today, um, and even some that are in Proverbs chapter 8, it reminded me something of something called the cut flower theory. Uh, The cut flower theory states that, you know, if you have a flower that is connected at the root, um, let's say if you have, you know, a, a rose bush, 
you know, the, the, the rose is growing out of the bush, but it's connected to something in the bush that is uh, connected to roots in the ground, and it's drawing out the nutrients and the minerals and the water to allow that rose to grow and to flourish to its full potential. When we cut up, when we come along and cut that flower off to put it in a, you know, in a bundle or a bouquet or something or give it to our significant other, you know, if you're a man and you haven't bought your wife flowers in a long time, go buy that girl some flowers. <clears throat> but if you find them, they're always cut, right? Or most of the time that you get them, you're not bringing home a whole rose bush. You're bringing home a dozen roses and they have been cut and the stems, the, uh, the stem has been cut. What this does is it immediately severs the flower from its life source. It severs it from the root. And although uh, the, the flower doesn't immediately just when it, you snip the, the stem just fall apart, it stays, you know, it still smells good for a while. It still looks good. The petals don't start falling off immediately. They even maybe start to open up a little bit and um, start to kind of bloom right before your very eyes after, you know, several days. Um, even though it looks beautiful and still smells nice, the death is inevitable. You may not instantly see the, the, the petals on the flower wither up and die. You might not see the the stem start to uh, lose its sturdiness. You may not to see. You may not immediate uh, immediately see the the bulb of that flower start to bend over and and give way to uh, the inevitable death that it's going to face. But it is coming. There is uh, this this cut flower theory. We're watching this happen in our culture because as we snip the our connection to reality, which is ultimately God. When we, when we sever uh, our culture from the root of logic and sanity and wisdom, all of which come directly from God, when we do that, we're, we watch things um, begin to unfold in this crazy, strange ways that don't make sense. We watch people talk about how there's, you know, an infinite number of genders. We talk about, uh, we're, we're seeing healthcare professionals uh, uh, maim children who are going through identity crisis or have gender dysphoria, causing permanent damage to them. And we celebrate them as, oh, that's it's so good. And, and if you're still rooted in Christ and you're still reading his word and you still are drawing from his spirit in your life, you're looking at some of these things and going... This is complete insanity. And this is why people say things like it's it's worse now than it's ever been. They they this is why they have this feeling that is um coming over them because they're watching the culture in the same way this cut flower theory, it, we're watching the, the culture erode and dissolve in real time. Well, Matt, we're still the freest nation on the on the earth. Well, for right now. Matt, we still have uh, freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Well, yeah, for right now, mostly it's starting to be eroded a little bit. We're the, the we're the you know most free nation that's left on the planet, and we have all these great things, and, and that's true for the moment. But in the same way that that rose is still beautiful for a while, and you can throw it in a vase of water and put some of that you know that whatever that flower food is that powder that you dump in the water to try to make it uh, the flowers live a little bit longer in a couple of weeks, it's inevitable. 
If you're going to try to live apart from those roots, the only end is death and destruction. And a lot of these ideas that we've held for a long time are starting to erode. There's one I want to talk about specifically because it's mentioned in Proverbs chapter 6, but um, it's this idea around work. I read a whole bunch of articles this week in my study as I was getting uh, prepped for this message this weekend that talked about how younger people are starting to quit full-time jobs, you know, 40-hour-a-week jobs, eight hours a day, five days a week, or 10 hours a day, four days a week, which is considered full-time here in the States at this point. They are quitting those jobs because they don't want to work longer than 30 or 35 hours. They want to still make that same amount of money, but they want to give less effort for the money. I read an article uh, this week from someone who has a master's degree in higher education from Penn State University, who starts to kind of outline these ideas almost as if they're positive. And you'll see how the wording of this starts to kind of shape a narrative that, oh, this idea isn't really so bad about people who don't want to work. Here's what she said. Finally, since the start of the pandemic, there's been a rise in the number of workers taking a break from work, whether it's to recover from pandemic burnout, reevaluate their relationship with work, or search for a better fit career. This trend is happening among workers across a variety of income ranges from white collar workers to restaurant employees. Now get this, these breaks range from leaves of absence that last several weeks all the way up to year-long sabbaticals. As I read this, I was kind of just blown away because these statements of people are reevaluating their relationship to work. They're reevaluating the relationship of, do I need to work as much as I do? Do I need to... Now, look, I'm not against somebody changing careers. I, I I tried this, you know, in tech and I didn't like it. And so I'm going into medicine or I started in medicine. I didn't like it. And I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm all for that 100%. Go do what God is putting in your heart to do and find something career-wise that is meaningful and um, will bring glory to God through your life. But the idea that I have to reevaluate my relationship to work I have to figure out how much work am I actually going to do and how much am I not going to do. And um, I'm going to have to take breaks, sometimes lasting up until a year-long sabbatical. This is just 100% juvenile. This culture that we have is has this assault on work, and the reason that they have the assault on work is because they want the pleasure without the effort. I'm working now with some coaches for uh, an online business, and a lot of the things that we that um, I've heard them say to the group of us that are in this program is, man, there's a lot of people who think I'm going to start an online business, and that sucker's going to run. I'm just going to be making money while I'm, you know, sipping a glass of sweet tea on the beach somewhere. 
And that's not the case. It's still going to take work. They're reframing the idea, the appearance of, hey, I'm not doing a lot of work here at the moment. Um, I'm just out here making YouTube videos or whatever. You know, I'm out here doing something online. And the truth is that there is an entire industry and level of work that is required to succeed in that field. They're trying to recalibrate people to say, hey, look, anything that you do is going to require hard work. I read another article this week from the Wall Street Journal, and it was titled, Employers Want Hard Workers, So They're Hiring Older People. Get this. There's a man who was interviewed at a packing plant in Pennsylvania who normally only hired teenage kids to do his entry-level job, but he had gone through so many kids who got in there and quit, got in there and quit, got in there and quit, that his number one prospect to hire right now, I think it was written early, just a few months ago, is 70 years old because he's an older gentleman that has um, a work ethic. Now, I'm going to pause right here and say I'm not raining down on... You know, all these, you know, I don't want to be the old guy on the porch, right? These darn kids, you know, they're just lazy. And, you know, I think every older generation, you know, makes that reference in some way, shape, or form to the younger generation that's coming up. But these kids learn that from somewhere. They got that idea from somewhere. They got the idea they need to have a different relationship with work from somewhere. And that is going to have to be laid at the feet of the parents who raised them. What that says is, is that these kids are publicly saying what has been privately put into them from their homes. Now, not all of them are like this. Obviously, kids go through you know, different stages of rebellion and listening to other people. And they're like, yeah, I don't want to work as hard as my dad or my uncle or my grandfather worked. You know, I would like to not work that hard and do and still have more stuff and have more fun. Everybody would, right? Why? Because our natural tendency is to find a way to push off the hard thing and to embrace the easier thing. But this leads us to Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Here's what the wisest man Solomon, not the ever lived except for Jesus, this is what he says. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. This these words were written during a time frame where the culture was very agriculture uh, based. Uh, all the economy, all the ways they got food. We're not, you know, most of us are driving to the store to get meat. We're not raising a cow, killing it, butchering it, and then pass it and then, and, you know, trying to figure out the different cuts of how to cut the meat and then trading with other people. That's the culture they lived in. Solomon is telling them, look, if you're not going to strike when the, the iron's hot, if you're not going to plant when it's time to plant, if you're not going to go out there and remove the weeds from your, from your crops when it's time to do that, if you're not going to go out and do that work, then what's going to happen is that when it comes time to harvest and when you need food to sustain you when the crops aren't growing, you're not going to have it. 
he's he's saying, how long will you sleep? There's obviously, this is a reference to people who are making a decision. Am I going to get out and go and work in the the field today? Am I going to raise the the cattle today? Am I going to work on the crops today? I'm not talking about if you're sick or injured or something like that. That's completely understandable to take the days that you need to get, to get well. But he's talking about people who are just... I don't feel like it today. I want to sleep. I just want to slumber. I just want to rest a little bit. I don't want to keep going out there. And then what's going to happen? Poverty is going to be what they reap from that. See, what this is a reference to is delaying gratification. If I don't want to get up and go to work, if I don't want to till the ground during Solomon's time, if I don't want to go to the office today, if I just get tired of it, I just can't handle this anymore, and I just stop working, and I don't go find something else, another career, another job to to take its place so I continue providing for my family, then what's going to happen? All the money's going to run out. The place we have to live is going to be in jeopardy. The That we're not going to be able to to feed the people who come to this house. We're not going to be able to host the people that we want to point them towards Christ. We're not going to be able to do any of that. That delayed gratification is what Solomon is talking about here. I know you want to sleep right now. I know you're tired from the work, but you have to keep going right now so that there is something to have later on down the road. Most people, when they give in to what they want at the moment. They're sacrificing their long-term plans for something right now. Uh, that The statement that comes to mind for that is people sacrifice their future on the altar of the immediate. They sacrifice relationships because they can't tell this young lady no. They sacrifice um, a family because they can't tell this young man no. They sacrifice these things because they they do what they want at this moment. They don't delay that gratification. They just uh, partake and consume right now, and it winds up derailing them later down the road. It may not have derailed them right at that moment. It may not have instantly caused them death, but in the same way that we talked about with that cut flower theory, eventually it's going to lead to a destructive end. G.K. Chesterton is a, a Christian author who wrote something brilliant. And um, uh, here's his quote, Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. When he talks about being weary of pla- uh, pain, he's talking about there's been so much pain in somebody's life that it just ground them down to where they're just they're just uh, nothing left. Like they're just meaninglessness is their life because they have so much pain, and that's kind of the idea that some people have. But the truth is, is that meaninglessness comes from this overindulgence of the pursuit of pleasure. taking what I want right now, not delaying that gratification, giving me what I want at this moment, and I don't care what it does tomorrow, I don't care what the ripple effects are, this is what I want now. And this is what Solomon is telling us to avoid. I read an article this week from Psychology Today that spoke directly to this same issue. It's an article from 2017 called The Benefits of Delaying Gratification. Listen to what Psychology Today, this article, says about this. What happens when you want to be instantly satisfied in all areas of your life? 
What happens when you only avoid pain? What results from needing to have the newest and most expensive car, even though you're in horrible credit card debt? Here's what happens. Living for a purpose becomes impossible at that point because a life spent avoiding pain doesn't result in goals getting accomplished. It might be an easier life in the short term, but it won't necessarily be a better life in the long run. When we live in pursuit of immediate pleasure, needing to have the newest gadget or accessories the moment they're available, or wanting the perfect job without getting an education or working our way up from the bottom, we become just like toddlers again, completely incapable of delaying gratification. Studies show that delayed gratification is one of the most effective personal traits of successful people. People who learn how to manage their need to be satisfied in the moment thrive more in their careers, relationships, health, and finances than people who give into it. The most troubling statement about this article is when it said, living for a purpose becomes impossible when all you're trying to do is avoid pain. When you can't delay gratification, you can't find meaning. When you constantly indulge yourself with with pleasure, like Chesterton said, meaninglessness is the only end. Here we are with the, the science of human behavior and psychology articulating a truth that Solomon presented to us more than 3,000 years ago through Scripture. The longer we go, the longer we live, the more discoveries that are made throughout science and psychology and the studies of human behavior and all these areas, what you're going to find is they're going to point back to Scripture and validate what has already been written. <clears throat> Another one of those things that our culture likes to kind of distort a little bit is the love of God. Most people think that when they say, you know, God is love, and they say statements like love is love, which actually doesn't make any sense at all, um, uh, the love is love part. When they say God is love, they just say, oh, if I love this thing, even if it's immoral in nature, if I love this thing or if I love this activity, even though it's anti-scriptural and immoral, then I'm just going to participate in it because God is love, and if he's love and I love this, then he must be in this, and this is how he wants me to act. He made me this way, so this is exactly what he wants me to fulfill this desire. And that's a very distorted view of what Scripture portrays for God's love. Um, But we very rarely hear people talk about the things that God hates. Solomon obviously thought it was very important for us to identify the things that God hates because he continues after that last passage of talking about working hard and, you know, not sleeping and not slumbering and being without things going forward. He goes into later in that chapter in verse 16 through 23 to talk about the seven things that God hates. Here they are. Verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, no seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, 
a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. My son, obey your father's commands and don't neglect your mother's instruction. Keep their words always in your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, their counsel will lead you. When you sleep, they will protect you. When you wake up, they will advise you. For their command is a lamp and their instruction a light. Their corrective discipline is a way to life. Those seven things that are listed there are characteristics that are growing, not getting smaller. They're increasing in this culture that has, like that cut flower theory, severed itself from the root of truth. The first one, haughty eyes, arrogance. I heard a a, a famous sportscaster this week say that his... Um, his 2023 uh, New Year's resolution was to be less humble because he's always right about his predictions in the sports field. <clears throat> and everyone gets a chuckle out of that. And, you know, it's said tongue in cheek and not really meant to be serious. But this is the pervasive attitude of people in our culture is that you don't, there is no truth. And you can't tell me what is right and wrong. I have my own truth. I have my own values. I determine what's right or wrong for me. I am the God of my life. I'm the one who has the freedom to do what I want. So what happens? I become arrogant. That's what Scripture's talking about when he says haughty eyes. The second thing, a lying tongue. We, we, we normally think when we, when we talk about lying, we think about people who lie on their taxes. They cheat on tests at school. Um, you know, they, uh, like a little kid, a toddler who, you know, has obviously gotten into the cookie jar and he's got crumbs and chocolate all over his face. And you ask him, did you eat the cookies? He's like, no, there's chocolate on your face. I don't know how it got there, right? The kid's lying, right? We think of lying in those direct terms, but I want to take this lying thing a step further and include or drill down on it the word deceit, because that's what lying is. There's a lot of deceit happening in our culture. Anytime that we twist something, we twist the truth. We try to cover up what we really think or we're really saying because we're spinning it in a way that'll make us not look bad. What we're doing is deceitful. And this type of deceit is consistently permeating our culture. And um, in one of our most popular you know, running television shows there from the mid 2000s. It was based on the idea that everybody lies. And it's not something they even look down on anymore that they just kind of took for granted the fact that everybody's lying about something, everybody's covering up something. So you're going to have to dig past it. And then once you get to the truth, people go, okay, you got me, you got me. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. We see this in politics all the time. People saying, I'm going to do this. When I get into office, I'm going to put this policy and I'm going to vote this way. I'm going to stand up for X, Y, and Z. And then when they get there, all of us have seen it. They crumble. They said what they needed to say to get the votes at the time, and then they don't follow through with it. 
it's deceit. <clears throat> and everybody, when we, if I were to ask you right now, what do you think about all the politicians that are in Washington or in your local government or your state government? The vast majority of people are like, these guys are just not telling the truth. They're lying. And we've just accepted it as a part of our culture. Why? Because we have been severed from the root of truth. <clears throat> the third thing, hands that kill the innocent. Hands that kill the innocent. Um, and I think there's a, a, a way to look at this or to apply this verse when you talk about the innocence, that somebody who didn't do anything wrong and you just wanted what he had and killed him for it. <clears throat> you wanted his house or his life or his car. And in those times, it wasn't uncommon for people to be especially brutal and walk and attack another family or another tribe of people in the Native American instances. And they would just kill each other because they wanted what the other one had. This is not just <clears throat> relegated to Native Americans or anything like that by any means. This is out throughout all of human history. But in our current context, the innocent among us are children. Hands that kill the innocent are steeped in hatred. They participate in murder. The way that I know that this is prevalent in our culture is in the year 2020, 977,000 abortions were performed in the U.S. alone. In 2020, nearly 1 million helpless, innocent babies were murdered, were dismembered in the womb, were injected with some type of poison or given a chemical that would cause them to, to die. That's 2,676 children every single day that are murdered. It's a, I'm, I'm sorry, um, 2,676 a day, 111 per hour and two every minute. We're 28, 29, almost 30 minutes into this message. And that means just in the time that you've listened to my voice, 60 children have been killed. This is horrific epidemic and people fight in public for the right to do this behind the veil of the law this is something that God hates hates this act and we are cool with it because it just happens and we know it happens and we're not sure what we can do about it so we just better scream at our phones or screens when people talk about it and we just let it go heart the next thing a heart that plots evil <clears throat> this is planning wickedness planning wickedness it's one thing to make a mistake it's one thing to be caught up in a moment and, and do something that is wrong in the heat of a moment. Um, and I'm not disregarding, I'm not or dismissing or 
making light of any of those things. Those things can have massive repercussions. But that's one thing to do that. There's another thing to plan it out. It's another thing to to plot the evil. How are we going to cover our tracks? How are we going to get away with this? How are we going to do these wicked and awful things? And it just made me think of same year in 2022, or just last year rather, in 2022, 85 million images of child, um, let me just say it this way to kind of, to keep it PG, of wildly inappropriate pictures of minors were traded and uploaded online. The United States is the number one nation in the world for hosting sites that would present this horrific industries images to the world and the United States is the number one consumer of those images as I watched the movie A Sound of Freedom I saw the links that people went to to grab kids to run a fake agency to try to lure in needy parents who thought their kid's going to be a model or something, you know, and, you know, for a magazine or for like, you know, some child clothing line or something like that. And then only to have them stolen and potentially never seen from again. The process of planning that wickedness out. How do I get away from this? How do we cover our tracks? How do we um, continue to, to, to give ourselves this gross, wicked satisfaction? There is a planning of this that happens. And this is another thing that God hates. <clears throat> Feet that race to do wrong. This is, I would categorize this as rebellion. You know, um, many years ago, flash mobs used to be groups of young people 